Father, we thank you so much uh, for your goodness. God, we thank you that you saw fit, Lord, that you would come into this world. God, that you would enter into creation, Lord, that you would be incarnate deity. God, that you would be God in the flesh, here dwelling amongst your creation, God. Lord, that is where we find hope this morning. God, not hope in our circumstances or in our will to do, God, but in you. Lord, I pray this morning that as we open your word, God, that you would be glorified, Lord, that we would see much of who you are. God, that as we leave this room this morning, Lord, that we would love you more because of who you are and all that you've done for us. And so, Lord, uh, just fix our eyes upon you. Lord, let our hearts be fertile soil for the gospel. Lord, let our ears be open. God, let our eyes, Lord, let scales fall this morning that we would believe anew, God, the glory of who you are and all that you've done. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, so my name is Cole Forrest, and I serve on staff here uh, at Cross as a student minister. And so it's always a, a, a pleasure to get to open God's Word with you as a church family. Uh, and so as a student minister, I serve families uh, and students from the ages or grades of 6th through 12th grade. And so if that's you, uh, and we haven't had the opportunity to meet and connect uh, after service, stick around. I'd love to just connect with you, get to know you a little bit, uh, maybe even be able to connect you to our student ministry uh, on Wednesday nights that we have here at Cross. And so uh, as we jump in this morning, uh, throughout the last three weeks, we've been diving into a message series entitled Glory in the Highest. And over the last three weeks, we've seen uh, a lot happen in Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, we've seen uh, Gabriel appear to Mary. We've also seen him appear to Zechariah. We've also seen Mary go and visit uh, her cousin Elizabeth, who is Zechariah's wife. Uh, and so uh, we've seen that happen. But then we also see at the end of last week, Taylor got to talk about how uh, John the Baptist would be born. And in his birth, Zechariah had been uh, mute. He had been unable to speak because of his lack of faith in the fact that God very well could give him a child at an old age. And so in that moment, what happens is, is that uh, they go to name the child. And they say, we're going to name him Zechariah because that's the tradition. You're going to name him after the father. And, and, and they're like, no, we're going to name him John. And so they look to Zechariah, like, Zechariah, we're going to name your son Zechariah, right? To which he responds like, hey, give me something to write down because I can't speak. Let me tell you what his name will be. And he writes down John. And it's in that moment that his tongue is loose and he's able to bless God. And that's what we're going to pick up this morning. So if you want to go ahead and flip over in your Bible to, to Luke chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 67 through 80 this morning. And as you turn there, I, I, I want to just talk about that for a moment, a little bit of what Brooke talked about. Brooke, Brooke, brought, uh, Brooke come in, came in to talk about Lifeline and foster care and adoption. And, and that's just like something that we have seen, uh, me and my wife as a, as a family, we've seen so many of our friends uh, go through foster care, have adoption, and uh, go through adoption. And so one of the things that we love, though, uh, is that in our, in our first week of being in Beaufort, so May 2020, height of the pandemic, we're moving, we're here. Uh, praise God, we're like almost two years removed from that here, from May 2020. Uh, but we, we come here and we, and we step foot into Beaufort, and Grayson and Lauren instantly become some really close friends of ours. So Grayson's our worship pastor, if you didn't know that. Um, but they instantly become really good friends with us. And that very same week that, that we step into Beaufort, James steps into their family's lives as their foster son. And so it, it was almost instantaneous. There's this bond that happens between uh, us and James. We love him. Y'all, he is the first diaper that I ever changed. Like he, he, has, he has this like sense about like this bond that we have where we love him. And so this weekend is actually Grayson and Lauren's anniversary. And so what they got to do, they got to go out and, and get out of town. And James got to come and stay with us. But all this week, every day, me and Ashton, we would sit down. We, we'd be kind of like winding down uh, for, for bed, you know. And we'd talk about, man, we just love James. 
We cannot wait for him to be here. He's going to come into our home this weekend. We're going to get to have the whole weekend with just us and James. And so what happens day by day by day, we're having this conversation and then Friday comes and I, I go to Grayson's house and I pick up James and I, I bring him home. And so I'm, man, me and, me and my boy, we having some one-on-one time. We're getting to hang out. Uh, and so when Ashton comes home from work, this is where the excitement kind of hit its peak. What well, was the moment that me and James are kind of hanging out in the living room for Ashton to walk in the door and for James to just change, he just grins from ear to ear, runs to Ashton to be able to see Ashton's smile on her face as James just embraces her with a hug and just gives her the love. That is the same type of excitement, but even to the utmost far more that Zechariah is experiencing here in this passage. There's excitement about someone coming, but not just anyone, but God. God coming into the world. And so this morning as we pick up, we're going to see that this is really kind of pushing us back to verse 64, where we see that his tongue is loose, his mouth is open, and Zechariah proclaims this praise to God and this prophecy all at the same time that he is going to open his lips and praise God, not only for the son of God coming, but then also for the, the area in which his son, his biological son, Zechariah's son, is gonna play in the coming of the Messiah. And so this morning, let's jump in. Let's read uh, from Luke chapter one, starting at verse 67. And it reads as this. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, Lord, thank you so much uh, for your word. God, I thank you that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, that it cuts through bone and marrow, God, to the soul and the spirit of who we are. God, I pray that this morning, Lord, that you would work in us as we read your word. God, as we speak your word. God, as we dwell on your word. God, speak to us now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So the first point that we see this morning as we jump into this text is that the Son of God is Emmanuel. The Son of God is Emmanuel. So if we look back at verse 68, what we begin to see is that this is what the words in which Zechariah proclaims, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. So he's praising God. Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So he visits with his people. He comes near to his people, meaning that he comes close to his people. And when we look throughout scripture, what we begin to see is that anytime that God comes near to his people, that it's an opportunity either for judgment or for salvation. It's one or the other. And so him coming near here has, has to have some implications. But what we begin to see just in verse 68 is that they are implications of salvation, not of judgment, of the way in which God is going to work in his people. And so we see here that this is evidenced by the fact that uh, he redeems his people. But when we talk about the fact that Jesus is coming and visiting his people, there's a purpose for his saving that he's coming into this world, and we cannot forget the way in which he has visited his people. It isn't just through smoke and fire of the Old Testament, but it is rather that he is coming in the flesh. John 1.14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The creator of all has entered into creation. 
Jesus takes upon the image of his creation and comes near to his people. And Zechariah has just experienced just the very little bit, just the cusp of what is going to come. He's had Mary, his relative, Elizabeth, his wife, he's had her, Mary, come into their home for three months, we know at least. And now he's just barely begun to experience the goodness of the Messiah coming. That there is a promise that has been made and it is now coming to fruition. He's experiencing that and it brings praise to his lips. But we cannot forget this morning that God entering into the world isn't just that he's entering into perfection that he created. Rather, he's entering into a world of brokenness. Brokenness due to your sin, my sin, sin of past, present, and future. But yet God comes in. He enters into our brokenness. And this reminds me of a time many of you probably have a similar experience to me, as me. When I was 16, I just got my license. Probably had it for like six months, maybe. I got mine a little late, so it probably wasn't even close to six months. Probably like more like four. And I, so I, I go to school. I'm on my way. I make my drive towards school. And me and my buddy, uh, we have been riding together. And so we were meeting some other friends at this four-way, at this four-way intersection. Uh, two stops and one just kept going. Now they've changed it. There's four stop signs. Praise God. No more wrecks, right? Uh, and so what happens is that we're on our way to school. And I'm like, man, we're just going to wait on them real quick. And so I, I go to whip the, 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 the car over into the parking lot. And as I do, I'm hit by a 3,500 going 65 miles per hour. Like completely wrecked. Like we're spinning on two wheels, glasses everywhere, what's going on. And so I, I really like black out from the, the airbag hitting me in the face. And so what, my first memory of this moment is that my friend who didn't have his seatbelt on, by the way, is kicking out his door trying to get out of the car. And so it's all that I can do to even to try to muster up enough uh, strength to kind of push the door open. And when I push the door open, I, I don't just kind of sit in my seat. As I put my weight on the door, I just fall out into the road on the glass. And so it, it's a scary moment. But what I begin to understand and realize is that there's, there's this lady named Dana who was my Sunday school teacher. She had two kids that were in middle school at the time. She's coming over the hill. I'm going to the high school. She's going towards the middle school. She's coming over the hill to the stop sign. And what does she see? She sees my car get plastered. She sees it get completely wrecked. And so she pulls off to the side of the road, leaves her kids in the car, and she runs to me and grabs me by the shoulder and turns me over and just says, are you okay? And pulls me out of the brokenness that I'm in. That is what Jesus is doing. He's entering into our brokenness and experiencing what we experience. He's stepping in. And it isn't just a visitation of, hey, let's sit by the fire and say kumbaya. He's saying, no, I'm here and I'm perfect and I'm going to experience the mess that you live in. That is what Jesus is doing in his visitation. It isn't just a, a good little sentiment, but rather it is a very, very big deal. And this must be something that we remind ourselves of constantly because we are a forgetful people. We forget that God coming isn't just this easy thing. That y'all, the, the, we talk about the resurrection as this huge miracle. It is, let's not discount it. The incarnation is far crazier. The fact that God would become flesh, fully God, fully man, no mixing of substance, but yet they coexist 100%, 100%. He comes and he enters into the world, a world that is broken. And this is a reminder for us this morning. I, I, I am currently reminded of this is saying that my wife says constantly. She said it the whole time we've been in ministry. We said, we talked about it with students countless times. Is that God sees us, he knows us, and he loves us. Let's break that down. That God sees us. He sees us in our current circumstances. He sees us what is going on in our life. He's not oblivious to it. God isn't a God who just spun the world into motion and said, okay, y'all figure it out. 
but rather he sees us. He knows the circumstances that we walk through right now, the difficulty, the high mountaintop, whatever it may be, he knows it. But then he also knows all the stuff that's happened previously. He knows the hardship. He knows the infertility. He knows all of these difficult things that you've walked through to get to this point right here. But yeah, he doesn't just know the past and the present, but he also knows the future. He knows what will be that we don't quite see yet. The moments where things seem really, really cloudy, we're like, what, what, what is next? God sees it. And he sees us right where we are in the midst of all of it. So he sees us. But secondly, he knows us. This should be kind of a disparaging thing at times because he doesn't just know the actions that we do that everyone else sees. Like we think about that and, and we're like, hey, if someone knows me, a lot of times they just know me by my actions that I portray or like the things that I do for them. Uh, and, and I try to put my best foot forward. So they always try to see the best of me. God knows us far deeper than that. God sees us not just in our actions, but he sees us in the posture of our heart and our thoughts and our emotions. He sees all of us. And this should be disparaging because y'all, we are evil people. No one is good. Not a pastor that stands in this pulpit. None of us that walk the face of the earth is good in and of ourselves. We need Jesus. And so God sees us. He sees the messed up evilness within us. And that should bring us to a place of, man, what now? But then the third thing is, is that he loves us. Is that despite the fact that we would sin against him and run away from him, he sees us, he knows us, and he loves us, that we are now the object of his affection. That he comes after us, not because we are good enough for him, but rather because he desires for us to be in relationship with him, because that is what is best for us. He doesn't benefit. We benefit from what he does. He gets glory out of it, and that's the main purpose of him saving us. But y'all, like, we are beneficiaries. We're on the periphery. Jesus is the one doing the work. So he sees us, he knows us, and he loves us. And how do we know that to be true? By the fact that God is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, that he takes upon flesh, he steps into creation. His ultimate showing of his love for us isn't in the fact that he is up in heaven sitting at the right hand of God, but rather that he stepped into creation, that he stepped into the mess, that he visited with us, God in the flesh. And it was not for judgment, but for salvation. Because Jesus said he didn't come to condemn the world, but he came to save the world. John 3. And so that's what we see this morning. First off is that the Son of God is Emmanuel. Secondly, we see this morning is that the Son of God is Redeemer. So verse 68, yet again, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Redeemed his people. God redeems us. And what this simply means is that he purchases us back, that he bought us back, reclaiming us from the bondage of sin, taking us from bondage to freedom. He does this by dying on the cross in our place. And this is what we say weekly in our student ministry. If I was to say, hey, students, stand up and tell me what we talk about every week, the gospel in four words, they should really easily be able to say, Jesus in my place. That Jesus would die a substitutionary death in your place and in my place for the sin of all humanity that would work itself out in the fact that Jesus' life was perfect, but yet he died in our place. This is what we talk about theologically as substitutionary atonement. Atonement meaning that Jesus' work in his life and in his death purchased us back. They are rightfully to God that he deals with our sin justly and that he brings us back, that he atones for our sin, that it's covered. But it's substitutionary because Jesus didn't just die because of you and me. He died instead of you and me. 
That's why it's Jesus in my place. This should ring true for us and, and be something that we begin to see more and more and more and more as we dive deeper into the gospel that Jesus had to live a perfect life. That if without his perfect life, without his perfect obedience to the Father, that there is no way that he can be the sacrifice to atone for our sin. If he's not perfect, then we can't exchange our filthy rags for his perfection. That is what God does for us in the gospel, is that he takes his perfect life and he takes our messed up life and exchanges them in the gospel. That's what we talk about in, in the gospel, how Jesus goes on the cross. He takes on the fullness of our sin, the fullness of the, the shame, all of that. He takes all of that from us and he gives us his perfect righteousness. So not only does Jesus live the life that we couldn't live, but he also dies the death that we deserve. That because of our sin, we deserve death. That is the rightful punishment that God has said, this is what retribution should look like, death, separation from me. And so Jesus steps in, lives the perfect life, and dies the death that we deserve on the cross. And then he raises back to life. Jesus bore the weight of our sin on the cross and died in our place. This is where we can look at what Paul writes in Galatians 3 and, and see what he talks about when he says, Jesus has stood in our place. Verse 13 of chapter 3 says this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's us, unless you're a Jew, okay? But most of us in the room are going to be Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus became a curse, but not just a curse, our curse. Jesus became our curse on the cross so that we could be blessed through his sacrifice. And Jesus offered up his life to purchase us back to him. When I think about this, I'll I, I, I just go ahead and caveat this. This is not a perfect illustration, but I want us to think about it and I'll show you why Jesus is better. Imagine that you go into your closet. So I go into my closet. Me and Ashton, we do this thing where she's really good at saying, hey, expel everything that you don't wear. Get it out of my house. She doesn't like clutter. She's like, get that stuff out of here. And so uh, I imagine that I'm going through that time of the year and I'm going into my closet. I'm pulling shirts down. I'm throwing them in a bag. And, and then somehow, some way, shape or form, for some reason, I grab like my favorite shirt and I put it in the bag. And then not only do I put it in the bag, but I take it to Goodwill. And then I go to my closet and I'm looking for this shirt to wear, you know, because certain shirts fit the best and you want the best feel for what you want to wear when you're going out. And so I go there to, to find that shirt and not be able to find it. I'm like, man, where did it go? Like, oh, I put it in the Goodwill bag. And so what do I do? I go to Goodwill to get what was rightfully mine. I go and pay more money for something I've already paid for. And so we, we look at this and we say, hey, I'm purchasing back the, the shirt that was once mine, but Jesus is far more grand than that because he didn't throw us away. We ran away and he came after us. Jesus ran to us, pursued us, and purchased us. He did not throw us away, but rather we went away and he purchased us back through the blood that he shed on the cross. That is why the gospel is so much more grand than what anything that we can experience today and really what this purchasing looks like and it kind of looks us back to is the fact that in the garden a man and God lived in perfect unity but yet sin entered into the world disobedience entered into the world through disobeying God but yet despite the fact that we have distanced ourselves Jesus gives up his life to buy us back y'all it may be really easy for us to to accept the gift of salvation but it came at a cost and that cost was Jesus's life it was worth so much to him to have us that he gave up himself 
It wasn't just a few dollars in our bank account that he gave up. He gave up his life. His own blood was poured from his veins. That's where this week, even as a staff, we were talking about the atonement, and we talked about Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It says this, the author of Hebrews writes this, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Y'all, unless Jesus is perfect and lets his blood flow on the cross, there is no redemption, there is no hope. We're all destined to be without him forever. And by Jesus being our sacrifice, y'all, God's wrath is completely satisfied. That should give us hope. Because we aren't the ones doing it. It's based on Jesus. And with this in mind, y'all, we can sing with David the psalm of Psalm 103, verses 1 through 4. This is what David writes. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all, let's, let's put this in perspective, forgives all my iniquity and heals all my diseases, who redeems my life from the pit, who crowns me with steadfast love and mercy. Y'all, the fact that the gospel is even real and true should give us overwhelming praise and joy, much like Zechariah being excited about the coming Messiah. It's not something to be, be cold over. It's something to be excited about and let it flow out of you. So not only is the Son of God Emmanuel, but he is also Redeemer. Thirdly, we see this morning that the Son of God is Savior. Verse 69 says this, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Zechariah says that this horn has been raised up and this horn of salvation signif- uh, shows us or identifies that salvation has strength and power that Jesus has strength and power and that Jesus being our sacrifice makes him our savior who, can count, who we can count on. See, we cannot bank on ourselves to try and make salvation for ourselves. We can't try to get ourselves out of the pit, but rather we must depend on Jesus because he is the one who has already done it. He is the one who has already paid the once and for all sacrifice. And this should be freeing for us today because it means that salvation doesn't come from anything good that we try and do. He word, try. Because every good thing that we do is tainted by sin in some capacity. We have to bank on Jesus and it can be solely dependent upon him. And the fact that his salvation is strong and powerful means that we can find that our salvation is secure in him. That's why Paul can write this in Romans chapter 8. He says, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Crux verse, 30, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Y'all, our salvation is secure because it banks on Jesus. It doesn't bank on you. It's only tied to him. 
Jesus says that all whom the Father has given him will come to him, and all that come to him he will not cast out. He will not lose any. That is good news because that means that he is the one who holds the power. You see, Jesus' work in the gospel, him being our redemption, it is enough. Jesus is enough. He is our Savior, and as he has victory over death, the consequence of our sin, y'all, we see this. We see that he has victory over death, even in the fact that in John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. A few chapters later, what does he do? He's raised from the dead. He defeats death. He defeats sin. He is the Savior. And because of his sacrifice in our place, we rest assured that his life has been credited to our account through faith in him. See, Jesus frees us from the bondage of our sin and makes us secure in him. And so a lot of times when we, when we nail down into this, we want to realize that Jesus is the only way. He's the only way out of bondage of sin, the only way out of the, the issues of our life. He's the only way. But the reality is that in our lives, we tend to try to make our own way out. We want to figure out well, how can I get to this place in life or whatever it may be. And so it reminds me of a story that my parents told. So if you ever have to play two truths and a lie with me, uh, you just go ahead and know that I was raised on a farm with nine horses. All right, go ahead and count that off. Make sure you write that down. You've got that one. So I was raised on a farm with nine horses. And so my parents, they showed horses, they team pinned, they did all these things. And so I, there's a story that my mom tells me about one of our, our horses. She really had a lot of our, our little ones. Uh, and so when I was little, I didn't realize all the, the, the stuff that was going on. But uh, we had this horse that my mom loved. But I wasn't allowed to ride her. None of us were allowed to ride her. And it wasn't because she was crazy. It was because she was hurt. And she was hurt because one day she got caught up in the high tensile fence. And so the high tensile fence, if you've ever worked with it, you got, you're like, even like with some good gloves, like you start putting up that fence and rolling it, like it'll tear and burn through the gloves really quick and you'll have some sores on your hands. And so she gets caught up in the, in the high tensile fence and what does she do? She begins to try and break away. She wants to get out of the bondage that she finds herself in. So she begins to step up and down, up and down, all the while the high tensile fence is rubbing and rubbing and rubbing and rubbing. And what does she do? She begins to hurt and hurt and hurt herself even more to the place in which the skin is no longer there to where the tinsel fence is really just almost rubbing just right on the bone. What did she need? She needed for my parents to get there earlier and sooner to be able to cut her free. Y'all, much like in our lives, we try and find our own way out and all we do is find ourselves in more despair. We're in bondage, but now we find ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper in the hole. We think that there's all different types of things that we can get out of it with. We think of money, we think of desires, we think of obedience. Let's flesh each of those out for just a moment. If we think about money, it's Christmas. Man, it's the gift-giving season, right? And so what do we do? We go and spend all our money on gifts to the point in which we go into debt for these gifts and in which we find ourselves in January, how the heck do I get out of this hole I put myself in? Because the picture that's painted is nothing is ever good enough. Everything just costs more money. And so we begin to try and pull ourselves out by spending money, by doing these things, only to find ourselves in more despair. Think about it in terms of sexual desire. We, we say, hey, I want, I want, I want, I want, I take, I take, I take. I'm not pleased here. Let me go there. Let me go here. Let me go there. And so what is the outcome of this? My generation has so easily tried to say, we will show you that it doesn't have a toll, but ultimately we see the toll. Billie Eilish just came out this week and said she's anti-porn. There is a toll that is taken from our sexual desires if left unchecked. It cannot be ultimate. And when we see it as ultimate, it leads to family division, family brokenness, and abuse. That's why we have things like, uh, like Fifty Shades of Grey that goes wild because people are like, man, what's next? 
Like y'all, it only leads us into more despair and more heartbreak if we put these things as ultimate. They cannot be ultimate. And then we look at not just, hey, a money or a sexual desire, but now let's talk about obedience. If obedience is where I hang my hat on, I will do good up to a certain extent. I will feel good about myself for being uh, the best person, for caring for others, for being obedient. Only for that one split second, that one moment of failure, and what do I do? I find myself back at the bottom. How the heck do I climb back up? Guess what? You're not called to climb back up because Jesus came down. And that's where we have to get this reality that he is our savior. He enters into our brokenness and we cannot try to figure it out on our own. He is the way. He is the only way to get out of our brokenness. We find ourselves seeing that he is the, so- the horn of our salvation, that in him our salvation is secure and he is the only way. He is the one that provides the way out. So not only is Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, not only is he redeemer and not only is he savior, but now we see that he is the promise keeper. Let's look at the back end of verse 69 all the way through 75. It says, in the house of his servant, David, so about the horn of salvation will be raised up in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah is showing us right here again and again and again that God is making promises and he's bringing them to fruition. That he is fulfilling them in the coming of the Messiah. He works himself all the way back to David, but even then further back to Abraham. He, he talks about his promise to David that he would establish the kingdom, his kingdom forever in 2 Samuel chapter 22. But then he also goes back to Abraham that he would bless the nations through his offspring. That's looking at Genesis 12 where it's initially made. Then he recounts it in Genesis 18 and yet again in Genesis 22. See, God continues to make promises and they are all coming to fruition in the coming of his son, in the son of God, Jesus entering into the world. And so now we must ask the question, well, what are the promises that Zechariah is referring to? Let's couple them together and take a a quick look. Verse 71 says this, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Couple that with verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. The reality for us this morning is that each of these promises have a physical and a spiritual reality, both of which are, are at play. And so let's look first at the spiritual reality and realize that like we talked about the enemy being defeated. The enemy that is defeated is sin. And so when we talk about the enemy being defeated, I cannot help but think about uh, an Old Testament passage that probably many of us, if you've grown up in the church, you've heard anything about Christianity, you think about David and Goliath, right? Think about how David walks up and he defeats the Goliath by slinging a stone. And then what does he do? He goes and cuts off his head. And so all throughout like uh, our time in American Christianity, what we begin to do is we try to place ourselves in the hero seat, in the victor seat. We are not the victor. What we begin to see, when I read this passage and I hear this passage, what I begin to think about is this one pastor in particular, Matt Chandler, he's preaching this sermon on this, on on David and Goliath. And what does he say? You're not David. You are not the hero of the story, Jesus is. And so that's where we look at a story like David and Goliath and we see that we're actually the coward uh, soldiers kind of shivering back, like I can't go up against Goliath. Well, duh, you can't, you're not strong enough. And Jesus steps onto the scene and beats Goliath, he beats sin. So the spiritual reality is true here and now. Jesus has had victory over your sin. Now we have to ask, man, will I walk in this victory? So that spiritual reality is 
true for us. And that's why uh, Paul can pin to the Ephesian church in 4.24, he says this, but to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. That's what he promises. That's what Zechariah talks about, this promise, that we would live in holiness and righteousness without fear. Y'all, perfect love casts out fear. We talked about this throughout uh, the entirety uh, of, of this really, well, this last little season. You know, it's like the persecution of the church. Now we're going to kind of dwell over into the physical reality a little bit. It's like we live in a space right here, right now, where we gather at the YMCA, and we don't wonder if somebody's going to come in and kill us all. But there are places in which they do meet, and that's the case. Like we have a spiritual reality that has been won. But now we are in a physical reality that now it will not be completed until the day at which time is finished. The day in which Jesus returns. At the second coming of Christ, y'all, we will be with Jesus and there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, but all joy as we worship God forever. So the reality of the enemy being defeated, spiritually it has been done. Physically we will experience that in the day that we see Jesus face to face. So it's a spiritual reality and a physical reality. And so now we've seen that God is the promise keeper, that Jesus is the promise keeper. That he has kept what he promised Abraham so many years ago that he would bless the nations through his offspring, and he has done so in bringing Jesus into the creation. And Jesus is stepping into creation. And so now as we've seen the Son of God, let's take a look at the son of Zechariah. The son of Zechariah, let's look uh, back at Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 76 and read through verse 80. In verse 76 it says this, And you, child, talking about John, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways and to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and end in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So now we see that the son of Zechariah is a prophet. The son of Zechariah is a prophet. We see that Zechariah has expressed gratitude over the Messiah coming, but now he expresses gratitude over the fact that his son has a part to play, that he would lead the way, that he would pave the way for Jesus to come, that John would be called a prophet, but not just a prophet of anyone, of the Most High, of Jesus, of God himself stepping into the world. This means that as he's a prophet, that he is to speak the message of God to those who would hear. A prophet is directed by the inspiration of God to proclaim God's will. So what was his message? A message of repentance, a message of salvation. And so just like all the prophets before him, think of Samuel, Jeremiah, Jonah, Isaiah. John was to proclaim the word of the Lord to the people. And he was preaching this message of salvation. See, last week we Taylor touched on this just a little bit at the end, and I'm just going to kind of barely hit at it again. But John, talking about his name, talking about coming in grace— so the message that, that John is going to proclaim, this message of repentance and of salvation is a grace to the people. The message of salvation is a grace to us. It is God's grace in our lives that we hear the gospel. It is God's grace in our lives that we hear the gospel acknowledge that we are a sinner and turn from our sin. It is God's grace in our lives that we will trust him. Y'all, this is a message that should be astounding to us. And as we hear this message, we should turn away from our sin rather than indulging in our sin. And this morning, yet again, we must see that our sin is much more than internal, uh, external actions, but internal desires to the depths of our heart. This is the reality that Jesus told the Pharisees, that they were whitewashed tombs, that they looked really pretty on the outside, but were full of death on the inside. 
How easy is it in our Christianized culture uh, that we can say, hey, I'm going to put on a face, I'm going to go to church on Sunday, I'm going to do the right things, uh, but not actually ever believe? Like, does it strike us that there will be people that stand in pulpits who do the right things and can say the right things but are full of death? Does it strike us that we live in communities where people can do the right things but are full of death? Does it strike us that we could sit in a a chair on Sunday and look really good but be full of death? Like, this is the reality in which we see that the son of Zechariah, John, would preach a message of salvation to all of us, that salvation has come in Christ. And so not only is John a prophet, but also the son of Zechariah leads to the way of peace. He leads to the way of peace. He was preparing the way. He was preparing the way. But what, how was he preparing the way? By sharing the truth of what Jesus was going to do, that he was coming for the salvation of sinners, that he was baptizing in a baptism of repentance, turning away from sin, that he was going to point to Jesus. Because Jesus is the way of peace. Like he is peace. If having Jesus is peace, and Jesus is the way to have peace. That is the only way that we have that in our life today and in the life to come. But we also don't just see that Jesus is peace. We see that he is light. That light shines into the darkness to take us from darkness into the light. Y'all, light shines into the darkness to draw us to the light, not to make us run and hide. A lot of times we can think to ourselves, man, my sin is too much. I'm too messed up of a person. Y'all, the light of the gospel has shone into your life. Don't run away from it. Run to the light. Run to Jesus. Because he is calling us out of darkness into light, out of death into life. God is doing a work. You see, Jesus must be our peace, and without him, we will not have true and everlasting peace. As we see in verse 80, John is in the wilderness for years until he starts his ministry. And at the crux of his ministry, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The point of John being the prophet wasn't for him to get fame. Jesus would even say, man, there's no one greater than John. It wasn't for John's fame. It was to point to the fact that the Lamb was coming to take away the sin of the world. The point of a prophet isn't to put the focus on himself, but to point the focus onto another. And the point that he was, the person he was pointing his focus on, his light on, was Jesus, the Messiah that was coming into the world. And so now we must begin to ask the question, what does this mean for us? What does it mean? We've, we've seen all these things about who Jesus is, who the Son of God is, that he's Emmanuel, that he's God with us, that he is Redeemer, that he is Savior, that he is Promise Keeper. We've also seen that John the Baptist, who was he? He was a prophet, but what was his purpose? To lead people to the way of truth, or into the way of truth, the way of peace. And so we must now behold and believe. Behold and believe. Look afresh on Jesus. See him. See who he is. And so for, maybe for some of us in the room, maybe we've never even thought about that before. We've, never, we've, we've grown up in a Christian culture. You've gone to church before. You've done all these different types of things. You've done Christian things, good things. But you've never actually beheld who Jesus is. You've never actually taken the moment to, to say, this is who Jesus is, that in my sin, that I've separated myself from God. But Jesus steps in and is my redeemer, that he lives a perfect life so he can make atonement for me. And so I confess and I agree with God that I am a sinner in need of saving. And so from there, I turn away from my sin. And what do I do? I don't trust myself. I trust Jesus. Because he is where our salvation is secure. So we don't just behold, we believe. Maybe that's you for the first time today. Man, don't let today pass you by. There's no special words that you can say. There's no like priestly prayer to say. There's not a, hey, just repeat after me and you're all of a sudden gonna be saved. Like, man, 
Talk to Jesus about your sin, about where you are, where you find yourself to be. But despite the despair that you find yourself in, that you desire life in him, relationship with a God who cared more about you than to sit and wait and just watch, but entered in to save you from your sin. So to behold and believe. Maybe that's you for the first time. For those of us who have walked with Jesus for a while, man, has the gospel grown cold to us? Is there excitement when we really think about the fact that Jesus has come? But in this season of Advent, the whole point of this series is that the crux is that Jesus steps onto the scene, but not just to be a baby, but to come and die in our place on the cross. Has it grown cold to us? And if it has been, our call this morning is to see who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh, that he redeems my life from the pit, that he is savior, that I am secure in him. He holds fast to me. None can pluck me from his hand. But then also he's the promise keeper, that he will continue being the same person that he has always been. So behold and believe. And then from that should stem us to prepare the way of peace. Jesus has come once, but he is coming again. And so our call is to be much like John, to prepare the way of the coming king. And that doesn't mean that we were saying, hey, he's coming, he's finally here. It's like, hey, he's already come and he's coming again. Will you be ready? We read stories like Zacchaeus. And what does Jesus say? No one knows the time, but be ready. To be ready isn't to have your life in order. To be ready is to trust in the finished work of Jesus. And so as we prepare the way from our belief, from the the fact that we see the beauty and the majesty of who, who Jesus is, we desire to share that truth with others. This season is unlike any other, being in Christmas time, right? Some of us, Christmas is gonna look different this year. It's gonna be difficult. For others of us, maybe we'll gather with friends, family, all different types of relationships that we'll, that we'll have. Most likely we'll have somebody in that group that doesn't actually follow Jesus. The plea is that as we prepare the way of peace, that we share the gospel with those who don't believe. I, the foremost, need to do that. My neighbors don't know Jesus. Man, I shouldn't let this Christmas season pass me by without sharing the gospel with my neighbor. Who is it that you will personally share the gospel with in this Christmas season? Name them. Because when you name it, (laughs) there ain't no going back. You can't just brush it off. When you know that person by name and you pray for them, you share with them, and you ask God to move. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy, God. I thank you that you uh, work, God, that you have become flesh and you dwelt among us, God, but you didn't just do it just to to be around your creation, God. You came with a purpose, and that purpose was to seek and save the lost. God, we are all lost without you. We need you. So God, I pray that this morning, Lord, that you would stir our hearts, God, stir our affections for you. God, let us love you because of how you've loved us. God, let us turn from our sin and acknowledge you and walk and follow you. God, not because a bunch of people tell us to, God, but because your love is so overwhelming that we cannot help so lord help us to remember who you are and all that you've done god let us behold god help us to believe and help us to prepare the way of your second coming in jesus name i pray